trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, LawPay. Sometimes people seek out lawyers before they're sure that they need one. And after it's determined that they do, they still not be willing to obtain representation, often because they can't or don't want to pay for it. I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and today on the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm talking about how you can get a potential client to yes and to be your actual client, and I'm speaking with Janice Brown. She's the founding partner of the Brown Law Group, which has offices in San Diego and Las Vegas, and she also does business development consultant work for other attorneys. Welcome to the show, Janice. I'm thrilled to be here. It is always a pleasure to have you. So, What is your advice if somebody comes in and it really seems like they need an attorney, but for whatever, they're hesitant to part with the retainer or the fees. What's your advice in helping them see that they need an attorney and you are worth your fees? Well, that question poses a lot of questions in my mind. So one of them is, you need to have confidence that you're worth what it is you're billing. Because if you have any doubts about whether you're worth the dollar amount that you're billing or your firm is billing for you, then that can come through in your answer. So one is is to have confidence that you're worth what you're billing for your services. I think the second thing is to focus not so much on what it costs, but on the value you're going to resolve. Because when people come to you with problems, there typically is an assessment or cost-benefit analysis to help having a lawyer help them with the problem. And maybe they don't know how to do that effectively to go through, but you can help them understand what the cost-benefit analysis would be if indeed they didn't hire you or didn't address the issue at all with the lawyer. And so when you talk about value, then the cost of legal services become secondary to the value you can provide. And I think that's very good advice and I wanna make sure I understand it correctly. So instead of saying, well, you know, this is going to cost a fair amount of money, but it'll probably be worth it. You could say, well, if you don't do this, this could happen and it might wind up costing you a lot more then my retainer is to take care of this now as opposed to later. Is that what you mean? Yes. So for example, let's say somebody comes to you that they are being threatened to be sued or a complaint has been filed. And so you say, okay, let me understand the facts that relate to the issues that you are presenting to us. And then do your best to try to quantify what that issue is. Like, so for example, is this somebody who's suing me for this reason and they're trying to get this amount of money, then you can say, okay, so here are your options. And I think one of the things that's really important is not to be attached for a lawyer, not to be attached to get the business. Sometimes people who can't afford you because they're concerned are really not your client. They should not come to you. So be careful not to try to convince somebody who really can't afford you or your firm to come to you because even though it's always good to do pro bono, you want to do pro bono because you mean to do it, not because someone just can't pay you. Well, and do you think too, it seems you hear a lot of stories about when an attorney makes a deal with a client on a fee because a client can't afford a going rate 
if it's not a pro bono case, a lot of times that backfires and the client doesn't really appreciate you. No, I totally agree with that. I mean, if you, you have to be careful not to be so desirous for all, every client. One thing I recommend to lawyers on my business development coaching part of my life is you think about who the ideal client is, not just any client. And because it's a matching on both sides. You know, sometimes it's a matter that's within your wheelhouse that you can do without having to do a lot of research. And sometimes it may be bigger than that. And so you have to be willing to look at yourself honestly and then also give your best effort to quantify what the problem is from the client's perspective. And sometimes it may be you have a referral that it's not the matter is not right for you, but for somebody else. Okay. And say you think this matter would be right for you. What's your advice on checking back in? I mean, should you just have one meeting and leave it at that? Or what should the follow-up be? Well, I am very sensitive in making certain that we do the legal work internally. So the very first thing I say is we do a conflict check and you tell the client we need to do a conflict check so that they understand legally you have that responsibility to do it. And so they makes them think a little bit more about the process being formalized. And then I do an engagement letter and I want the engagement letter to be really clear. If I don't understand the whole scope of the litigation because it's a complaint that just got filed and it's a client that I don't know, I'll ask for a retainer amount up front to have me help at least get into the case so that I can understand it better. Um, especially if there's a timeline starting to tick, like an answer needs to be filed or something like that. So I do the formalized process, get through that, and then once the conflict clears, once the engagement letter has been sent, and then I follow up specifically with, here's my recommendation on what we should do next. So you would do the engagement letter and the conflict check and your recommendation before the person has agreed to hire your firm? Well, I do a conflict check before they hire the firm because I might not be right, able to take them right, on. Right. So I want to make sure that I can do that because I'd hate to be in the place where I take information from them and then find out I have a conflict. I prefer not to do that. Right. So say you have a meeting with someone and they say, well, I'm going to think about hiring you. Do you get back in touch with them like in a couple of days? or? I do, but I also really have faith in people's common sense. And you want clients that have common sense. So what I try to do is I lay out for them the consequences of the delay. So if there's a timeline because they've been served with a complaint or they've been served with a demand or they want to pursue something and there's a timeline on their desire to pursue it, what I try to do is to get the timeline and then articulate back to them that I need an answer by a date specific. Because if you can avoid clients that wait to do things at the last minute, that's a really good thing. Right, right. And you mentioned having that confidence. And I do think there's a fair amount of attorneys, particularly ones of smaller firms, who tend to maybe undersell themselves or not realize the value of your work. How do you be realistic about what you can charge and build up that confidence? when you chat with a potential client? So I think you have to work on that in advance of meeting with a client. And that's internal work. That's your own personal work. And maybe you find out a little bit more what the market is demanding and you understand the value that they get from having a particular firm assigned to it. 
But those kinds of things, I think you should work out yourself before you interact with somebody because you do want to communicate a confidence in the value that you're giving the client. So that's what I think that work is. But, you know, if the client comes back to you and wants to negotiate rates, that depends on your firm. Some firms do that and some firms don't. So you just have to know internally if you're on your own, then you can do, you know, what you think is best. But I really am to the place in my career, and I've been doing it for a long time, and I think I wish I'd have known this earlier, is you don't have to accept every client as if it's going to be your last. If you continue to do your networking and your branding and get out there and meet people, you don't have to accept a bad client, uh, one that is difficult or one that doesn't want to pay you. or So you have to make sure that you also are protecting yourself and your time and reputation. And you mentioned, you know, you don't want a client who um, is a bad client. You want to avoid that. Do you have any tips on picking that up real quick when you first meet the person? I mean, maybe it's an issue of listening to your gut or what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, one is if they've been to a bunch of different attorneys. right. Right. Because you know they're shopping. And sometimes I found that people's stories evolve as they continue to shop. So that's one thing. I think, too, is if they really begin to haggle and negotiate, especially if it's a modest retainer, if they can't afford a modest retainer and you see it's a piece of litigation or a big transaction, then maybe that's not what you want to do. So that's the second thing, because oftentimes when you get into those kinds of situations, then people start having opinions about the quality of the work that you've been giving, and that can be something that they use as a way to not pay you. You don't want to get in a situation where you are negotiating a discount on the fees that are owed you. So that's another thing that I say just to be sensitive to. And then also use your own personality to see if this is a person that you want to be in business with. Because when you're working with somebody and doing litigation or serious transactional matters, your personalities are going to interact. I mean, that's part of what business is. And if the kind of person that you're doing business with is somebody that you don't particularly like, um, you know, if you have the ability to not do work with people that you don't like, I'm not sure everybody has that mm-hmm. option, mm-hmm. but to the extent that you have, I would highly recommend that, you know, you have to be open-minded and everybody's not going to be like you, but if you have a distaste for someone or don't trust their ethics or their honesty, I don't think that's a good client in the civil context. In the criminal context, it may be a little bit different. Yeah. But in the civil context, you need to trust your own internal gut or your instincts as to whether somebody should be a good client or not. So if you're in an initial meeting with a potential client and it seems like you would like them and they would like you and it's a good fit and you tell them your retainer and they're like, oh, that seems really high. What should your response be? I'd say, no, it actually isn't. It's either standard fair or it's really a de minimis amount compared to what the litigation is. And if you have an issue with it, I totally understand. And maybe I can refer you to somebody who's less expensive. I see. And it sounds like you've probably, have you had that situation yourself? I have. And so what happens is when I first was a young, younger lawyer, I would say, well, I'd make it lower. I mean, I would respond to their criticism by making a change. I don't do that anymore. Mm. And because there's so much business opportunity, and if you have confidence in that what you're doing is right and you think it's the right amount, 
then you'd stay with it. And sometimes what happens, I've seen, if I say that, people go, you know what, you're right, here's my check. <laughs> so they want you to not negotiate because, I mean, I could see where as you, somebody says that's too high and you're like, well, negotiate. They're like, well, I don't want that person as an attorney. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And so if you say, no, this is what I'm worth and I really understand that and I have no hard feelings, but I'll definitely refer you to somebody else. It's like, wait a minute. I want you. Well, right. You know, what, what are you trying to get rid of me? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right, I never That's thought human of nature. It that way. That's human nature. Because you know, I do think there's a lot of attorneys, either if they're younger or maybe they've been working for a firm and went out on their own, you know, later in life. And there's that instinct to negotiate on the retainer. But it sounds like you're saying, no, don't do it. I mean, not everyone has the choices you do at this point of your career. But it sounds like that's good advice for everyone, no matter where you are with your business. There's nothing worse than having a bad client owe you money. As a lawyer, that's a very dangerous position to be in. So I don't recommend people put themselves in that position. If they can do it up front and start seeing problems, I think that just because someone wants you as a lawyer doesn't mean they get you. It has to be a win-win. Very good advice. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about getting retainers and sizes of those retainers. We'll be right back. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person, no equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com slash podcast to sign up and get your first three months free. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Warren. And on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking of Janice Brown. She's a San Diego litigator, and she also does business development for other attorneys. And we are talking about convincing potential clients that you are worth the money you cost and getting them to yes. So we were talking about retainers this last before the break. And I wanted to ask you another question about that. If you have a potential client, is it ever a good idea to let them pay part of their retainer now and part of their retainer later? Or should you get your full amount right at the get-go? Because it seems like a lot of times if someone runs out of their retainer, there's a good chance that they don't have anything else for it. Well, that's what you want to find out because you don't want to get yourself in a situation when you're representing somebody who can't pay you. And if that's the case, then you can make the decision up front that whether this should be a pro bono matter or a matter where you do on a contingency fee. But if you're an hourly based attorney and the person that you're talking with to hire you doesn't have the resources, then I think up front you should figure that out and refer them elsewhere. If the question you have is whether they should pay a partial amount of retainer, that depends on whether you believe them to be trustworthy. And I think trustworthiness comes from referrals. It comes from your instinct. It comes from whether you've done past business with folks. So I've had some people that are know that are you know, they need me to do something for them, like review a severance agreement or something that's not an expensive thing. But I know them because of who they are in the world and my relationship with them that I wouldn't require a retainer to do that kind of work because I trust them. But it's typically based upon who sent me the referral. Do I trust the people who referred me or 
Have they established trust during their business dealings with me? Or do I know them as somebody who's trustworthy? And so I don't apply anything in a cookie cutter fashion. I do use my own good judgment as a tool to help me decide what to do. And so I'm open to someone doing what you just suggested, but I have to have some trust built in that that's the right way to go. Well, do you think if you do have a relationship with the person and you do trust them, is that maybe a good business development thing too? Say someone has referred you a fair amount of business and now he needs your help on a severance agreement. Is that a good idea that maybe he doesn't have to do it or retain or he can pay you when you're done or something like that? Yes. No, of course. I mean, because all of this is is relationship-based. And so when you have retainers are typically when there's someone you don't know or the amount of the tasks that they're asking you to do is something that's significant. If you have a relationship with somebody already based upon your past business dealings or your your network and you don't need to get a retainer because you have a good relationship with them, I still do the engagement letter, but I don't include the retainer component. So I'll do things like that for folks. And I think if it's less than $1,000 in California, you don't have to do a retainer agreement, but I typically do them as a matter of course, unless it's a client that I do a bunch of matters for, and then I don't do a retainer agreement. I have one agreement that encompasses all the work that I do. Do you have advice on how to kind of get a good sense on your own, whether or not someone is good for the money they will owe you other than the trust you mentioned. I think sometimes an attorney might think, oh, well, this person owns their own apartment building. So they're, they're you know, they're good for it. If not, I can, you know, I can put a lien on the building. And then it turns out, oh, they don't own the building. It's their father's. And their father is sick of paying for them. But I think sometimes attorneys kind of try to size up what someone's wealth is. And it can be difficult unless you were willing to go and do the research, which you know, some people may not want to do that or it may not be a good idea. Well, you know, I think lawyers oftentimes aren't the best business people because we are focused on solving problems and we learn a skill set in law school and business is not one of the skill sets that we're taught. So we have to do a lot of things by trial and error. And the best lesson that you can ever learn is when a client doesn't pay you and you've done a great job for them. And for whatever reason, they can't afford to pay you or they didn't intend to pay you or whatever that is, then you become a little bit more savvy about your own value and what you're worth. So it does take your gut instinct, but you can ask some questions. I mean, you can ask some questions of folks about you know, I want to be certain that you're going to be able to handle this, the cost of this litigation and a proposed budget off the top of my head right now would be X dollars. Is there a way that you can afford that kind of money? And so I try, you know, pieces of litigation. I mean, unless they say, hey, I want to get rid of the case immediately. Can you help me? I mean, so there's different budgets there that you can recommend to folks, but I think you have to start getting, if you're a lawyer and you're doing work in the private sector, you need to get smarter about business. And so you start learning things about business and that will help you become a better lawyer. Right. And I think, you know, sometimes with certain, like in family law, a a potential client might be swayed if you represented some celebrities or, you know, sports figures. Say you haven't done that, but you're a very good attorney. 
you might even be better than the attorney who's representing the celebrities and going on TV all the time and all of that. How can you convince that person that, you know, you would be a good attorney for them? You may not have that name recognition, but you do very good work. Well, most communication is nonverbal. Lawyers sometimes believe that verbal communication is really the only communication, but it isn't. And so much of communicating confidence is through your nonverbal movements or people can feel it. And sometimes, because I've worked with some famous lawyers in my past, and I've also worked with some lawyers who have famous clients, and I've actually had a few myself over time. And what I can tell you is, is the lawyers who are always talking about their famous clients may not be as confident as you think they are. <laughs> I think you're probably right. Yes. But I don't know if clients realize that or potential clients. Well, so in, to some degree, if the client thinks that's what they want, then they probably aren't going to be satisfied with you. Because if they want the bells and whistles, then they can go get the bells and whistles, you know, because those folks take in probably large volume of cases. But if they have the ability to discern that when they talk to you and you help them address their problem, that they feel better about the problem as they're leaving, that's the best way that you can communicate your skill set is to help relieve somebody's tension or frustration with the problem. And that's what I try to do, whether they're going to hire me or not, because part of what this business is, is as well is to have an efficient network. So even if somebody calls me and I listen to them and they don't have the money that's enough to pay my firm or their matter isn't something that I want to do and I can do it, but I don't want to do it or whatever the issue is, I try to refer them to somebody because I want to be considered to be a trusted advisor to everybody. So even if you don't hire me, I'm going to still try to help you at least initially to help find someone else who could help you because that's just being service-minded and it always comes back to pay dividends. I'm intrigued by what you said about nonverbal communication about confidence. Do you have advice on that for attorneys who are working at trying to get a client who hasn't made his or her decision yet? Yes. So confidence in my mind is something you develop and it's somewhat independent of the results. I mean, the results can help you build your confidence, but really it's confidence in yourself, in your ability to discern what's right, what's wrong, to be honest about what you do know and what you don't know, to really have a sense of knowing yourself and to know what you're good at doing. And that work to figure out what you know and what you don't know and to have a confidence level in it is something that I think some lawyers have, some lawyers work on it, and some lawyers don't. I think the difference, how you can tell the difference between real confidence and sort of superficial bragging, real confidence is something that's unshakable. It's what you know about yourself and what you can do and how you feel confident and communicating it. And confidence is also demonstrated by not having to get the client. It's not like a must have. It's a win-win. If I'm right for you and you're right for me, then it'll work out. It's almost the opposite of what people think. 
if you're not attached to it and you're saying, okay, well, here's what I do and this is how I do it and this is my experience and this is what I think I can do for you, and they hear that and that gives them a sense of not only hear it, but also they see it and it's demonstrated by how you conduct yourself, how you handle their questions and how you don't feel defensive and you're not trying to convince, you're just trying to help. That all communicates something and either they get it or they don't. And if they don't get it, then just let them not get it and help them find somebody else. Gotcha. And that's everything we have time for today. I want to thank you so much for joining us, Janice. I'm happy to do anything you want me to do because you've always been so good to me and I always appreciate these opportunities to share my perspective. So anytime you want me to, I'm here for you, Stephanie. Well, thank you. You're always a, a, a wonderful source. And listeners, I want to thank you for joining us as well. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.